We are back for another Codex Cantina episode, which is just two guys talking literature, trying to make sense of it. Now, we spend a lot of time pushing ourselves, trying to understand this literature, organizing it, and then bringing it to a conversational approach for how we deliver it. And we've absolutely put more money in it than we've gotten out of it. So if you guys are considering supporting this channel, we'd appreciate you checking out our Patreon link at patreon.com slash the Codex Cantina, as well as Ko-Fi of ko-fi.com slash the Codex Cantina. It all helps us in running the show, along with commercials, guys. So thank you so much. We're going to do a quick commercial break, and then we'll get on with the rest of the episode. I feel like Nakata after reading this book, and Una, don't feel so bright. If you feel like you need to talk about what the heck happened in this book, you've come to the right place. Let's talk about Kafka on the Shore by Haruki Murakami coming up today. I, I don't think I want to know. I want to be, I, I want to revel in my my blunder. I don't know what to call it. <laughs> my stupor. My stupor. Yes, I'm, I'm happy in my stupor on this one. Guys, if you've been here before, welcome back. And if this is your first time, we think literature is something that everybody deserves to have a discussion and talk about afterwards. And boy, is this the book for that guys if you're down for a conversational approach and thank you to all of our patrons who have supported us on this journey guys hit that subscribe button down below my name is una welcome i'm crypto are we the same we're like two people <laughs> heading towards the same path and you're my dream version of me who knows <laughs> let's start off with publication and context and information on the book and author kafka on the shore was published september 12th 2002 and our version was translated by philip gabriel so who was this author on a day in 1978 a baseball game he just up and decided you know what i'm gonna be an author and in less than a year had a book published believe it or not that's some gumption right there wow so haruki murakami is a contemporary japanese author listed in time magazine as one of the most 100 influential people in the world. I believe it. And when he participated in a 2008 New Yorker festival, tickets sold out in minutes, with fans claiming to have flown from New York, uh, from Japan, Korea, Australia, to see him in person. We'll put a link down below for some of these news articles that we're going to be referring throughout today. Well, this book was published in 2002. He hasn't published a ton since then. So do you view this as, like, later no Murakami is this kind of in the midpoint uh it's it's kind of interesting where this book falls but what one thing that is not disputed is it's a lot of fan favorites for Murakami's novels I could see that I obviously haven't read all of his novels to have a you know wealth of knowledge to compare to but this is something special so how do we describe this book Right. First, there's, you know, when people say a book was easy to read or pleasurable to read, like, what do they mean? Was it just the easy, like, aspects of how the words just flew into your brain and you didn't have to think much? Like, like it's always hard to describe this. But I loved in the beginning when they were talking about in the town of deleted and country deleted. And it's just like repeated a couple times. Like, the writing is just very hypnotic. It's easy to consume. And it's just a very pleasurable read just from the straight words. There, there's just something about the way that Murakami writes. You feel in the scene sometimes. For me, it was also the pacing. That's something that I talk about occasionally. 
uh, when we look at novels, not maybe as relevant in a short story like we cover often, but for a book, I think pacing is very, very important. And here, I love the back and forth and the uniqueness of the writing style from chapter to chapter, switching back and forth between characters. That is what really drove me through this book and made it, quote, easy for me to consume and enjoy. And it's very engaging, too, right? You're like, whoa, I want to find out what happens next. But then you jump to the other character, and normally you're like, oh, I wanted to find out what happens. But then sometimes these stories are so closely connected, you're like, wait, what? what's going on here? And it's just very easy to find yourself being like, well, I got to find out what's going on next. But at the same time, while the writing is easy, and the pacing is great, and it's very engaging, it's very mind-boggling some of the concepts that he throws at you as a reader. He, he really expects a lot out of you because I think there's just like a masterclass of illusions in this story. Like you've got references to Greek tales, to Oedipus, to Shakespeare, to these uh, you know philosophers like Hegel and, and, and uh, Henri Bergson. Like he really throws a ton at you and just keeps chucking it at you. And he's not concerned about, you know, like whether you're keeping up because he just keeps going with it. I think this is definitely one for... I know necessarily a mature audience because I think there's that as well, some mature aspects to the story. But I think a well-read audience was kind of my feel that if I hadn't had some of that background knowledge, I would have struggled or maybe not enjoyed this story as much if I'd read it younger before knowing some of this information. But also as well, I think in my feel of reading this book, I was juggling a chainsaw, a hammer, and an egg all at the same time <laughs> while blindfolded. It's kind of how I felt, but I enjoyed it because I love the thrill. I, I love the ride mm. through the story mm. in this. It, it had a lot of gravitas. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and, and it's to me, the, the characters are just the beating heart, right? You had really memorable characters, I would say, with Nakata, who is this old man, and you start out with this mystery, and all of a sudden, he's not so bright, but hey, he can talk to cats. Like, he's like the Ace Ventura <laughs> of pet detectives <laughs> looking around for these different pets in town. That's like, perfect. hey, man, I'm looking for Gomu. You've seen him. And, and it's just really engaging. And also, I would say it's easy to relate to him because he feels alienated, right? Like, these things set him apart from society. And I think that's why a lot of people might be connecting with Nakata. It's kind of like the adorable guy. You just want to kind of give a hug and say, uh, oh, yeah, I saw that cat down on the street. Let me help you out, Ace. <laughs> I, I think a lot of times most of us can relate to crazy because we have been there at one point in time, at least as a an middle-aged man now. <laughs> well, and then the other character, Kafka, is just as enthralling where he's told this prophecy as a young boy. And he runs away because he gets the Oedipus prof you know, prophecy. He's going to kill his father, and he's going to be with his mother and his sister. And he just becomes obsessed with it and starts worrying about it. And he, much like many young people, are worried about their future and can they control it. And that's where that concept of fate comes in that's just woven. Uh, to me, Murakami has even said, like, well, fate's just one of the things in there. And I'm like, well... I don't know, man. Maybe it's just the way I read this, but fate was like the main thing in there that I was just so engaged in finding out, is there fate? Are these characters controlling their future? And what does it mean to know what your future is and to continue towards it? 
I'm glad you brought that up, that that felt one of the central points of the story for you. And I think the story can be openly interpreted many ways, because for me, it was the duality of the story. The two different characters on these very similar but very different journeys, the odd chapters being Kafka and Nakata being the even ones and back and forth, back and forth. And I'm not sure maybe who is real, who is not real. That is what I felt was the essence to the story. Well, you had the light and the dark, the consciousness, the unconsciousness. You had a lot of duality in this story. And it's kind of reminded me a little bit of Star Wars, don't you think? <laughs> oh, yeah, for sure, right? So for me, I I feel like that this story didn't give me metachlorians. And I was happier for that. You know, in Star Wars... George Lucas overexplained the force and took some of the magic away from the force where in this story they don't give you that and that magical realism that magical fantasy kept me on this high through the whole book and that is wonderful feeling and I think that's what made this book so special right so what are you getting with this book? You're getting the surrealism. You're getting that concept of fate. What can we control? There's alienation, like we talked a little bit with Nakata, and you know what allows someone to fit in, maybe even a little bit of Kafka exploring that as well. But also sexuality is something that's explored a lot. And we read this with our friend Jack, the Rambling Raconteur, who is an amazing person to read this book with. He's already pushed out his video, and I will leave a link in the description doobly-doo down below. But what he covers more is kind of like that concept of sexuality and how he does hit you in the face with it. I did a little bit of research, and I read this article where the quote is, The sexuality is rooted in 60s promiscuity, explained Jini Takimori, translator of Sayaka Murata's best-selling convenience store woman. Along with promiscuity comes spiritual and emotional emptiness. This is the heart of Murakami's works, the theme of alienation. And wow, does that not summarize it way better than I ever could? So again, check out Jack's video. I'll put a link where you know this article came from, and even I'll put a link down below where I read uh, an interview with Murakami and a feminist where he talks about how he uses women, and I, I'll let him kind of explain it from there down below, but that is something that is present in all of Murakami's work, so make sure you check those things out too before you decide if it's for you. I don't think it'll break you though. For me personally, you know that I'm sometimes kind of prudish about those things in books, but this one doesn't feel like it is tacky. It feels like after we discussed it, that it did have a purpose. It is serving that, you know, Oedipus. It is serving that idea of growth of Kafka. There is more than just Kafka's journey here sexually through it as well. There's some revelations in the story that we'll talk about when we get to the spoiler section. But I, I don't think that it's done distastefully and that's something to note but you should be aware of it when getting into this book there is some stuff that is maybe you should be 17 or older or talk with your parents you know if you're a younger reader before jumping on this because oh you hear that there's a guy that talks to cats and you like talk to cats and there is more so please be aware of that before getting into this book so in our final part about the spoiler free section i would just love to touch on one more thing which is something a writing teacher kind of instructed me of in college and his view on magical realism, he says, your desire as a writer is sometimes to lead people to conclusions. And a lot of you know writing teachers will teach you that. He said, here's the secret when it comes to magical realism. Don't explain it. Don't take away the magic. Don't give them, he didn't say midichlorians, but I think you summed it up you know, as a good analogy <laughs> with that. Some people, that, that robs them of the magic. And I think that's what's going to happen with Murakami's writings is that the magic isn't fully explained. And I think that allows people to come to, you know, various different conclusions. 
whether you think it's commentary on the sexual awakening of this main character, whether you think there's spirit projection and how the characters are moving in between bodies, whether you think there's a dreamscape, you know, they even mentioned dreamscape in the story too. He allows you to explore of, you know, is part of this real? It is some of this kind of made up. You can come to a lot of different conclusions and just because someone offers an option for you and you don't agree with it doesn't mean that they're wrong. That's magical realism. That's the point of this not being explained is we can all resonate with it because we all have different experiences in life and can see different perspectives. That is the great allure of literature, right? Is the fact that you can read something, I can read something, and we can come to a consensus of shared, you know, ideas, but sometimes we've come to shared ideas from different paths. Sometimes we've disagreed on things. And I don't think that a book like this can be, quote, explained. And that's okay. And sometimes you have to be okay with some literature just being what it is. And we try to help you, but it doesn't mean that we're right. It doesn't mean we're wrong. It just means that's what we think. So a quote from Murakami himself before we jump into our discussion here. For me, writing a novel is like having a dream. Writing a novel lets me intentionally dream while I'm still awake. I can continue yesterday's dream today something you can't normally do in everyday life. It's also a way of descending deep into my own consciousness. So while I see it as dreamlike, it's not fantasy. For me, the dreamlike is very real. Again, I'll leave a link to those before down below. And uh, I think that kind of summarizes our thoughts. So let's kind of jump into more of the spoiler discussion now. And let's talk about Crow. Because, <laughs> oh. dude, how long was it before you're like, wait a minute, this guy's not real? Like, I think halfway through the book that I was like, wait a minute, the the crow is is an imaginary friend? Is this Santa Claus? Is this what? What? No. Yeah. yeah. No. It, I actually wrote it down in chapter nine and 10 because I sent a message to Jack where I was like, wait a minute. Um, why is crow suddenly with him when he ran away from home? And like, Yeah, like I think it was in 12 when I finally realized that crow was fake. Do you know? Well, do you remember? Uh, what crows Ugh. mean in Japanese culture as opposed to American culture. No. Have you told me before? Yeah, I think it was during one of our Kutagawa talks when we were doing either Rashomon or uh, in a grow. I think it was Rashomon. Um, fertility? So Yatagarasu is the three-legged crow, crow, basically, and it's meant to represent divine guidance, you know, the gods, the Shinto gods. They're showing the way, if you will. And that's kind of maybe a little bit of Crow's experience, right? He's, He's prodding. Kafka like oh like like he's kind of like the aggressive version that Kafka suppresses maybe and maybe this is a little bit of a coming of age tale too and Crow represents that divine guiding light of what's Kafka supposed to be and that really does play into the idea of fate it really doesn't matter what happens to Kafka the hand of fate is guiding him or a crow in this instance and once I realized the crow wasn't real then it kind of started clicking into place. You're like, oh, there is a predetermined destination for poor Kafka, and I'm very nervous for when he gets there. I love some of the quotes in the opening chapter, too. Sometimes fate is like a small sandstorm that keeps changing directions, but the sandstorm chases you. You turn again, but the storm adjusts. Over and over, you play this out like some ominous dance with death just before dawn. And I like this idea of fate being represented by this, this this storm that sweeps you along. And we've seen this before, like your boy Pushkin, right? We did the yeah. blizzard by him, who also uses nature as this, this external force 
pushing someone along. And later on, we meet a very Southern gentleman in this book, <laughs> Colonel Sanders. <laughs> <laughs> Colonel Sanders. Well, and, and he's just very straight, like, I'm a concept. I make sure things happen that are supposed to happen. Like, to me, I kind of assign some of the ideas of fate, even with Colonel Sanders, who's making sure the characters are going towards the path that they're in the Greek view of fate, where there's a straight line and you will end up at that point. He kind of represents that, making sure that these characters end up at that point. So two things real quick. Did you feel like, and you don't have to answer this immediately, that Kafka kept going to his fate being a curse or something negative, and we can discuss that. But also, did you feel like that Colonel Sanders was breaking the fourth wall? Like, if if this was a movie, this is when Deadpool turns and starts talking to the camera, and you're like, wait, they just broke the fourth wall. Like, they're not supposed to do that. That's like really what I felt like Colonel Sanders was, was a complete break of the fourth wall. Well, it's it's like he gave us an insider's view of Murakami himself, right? Like, yes. Hey, I, yes. I'm making sure this is what's kind of happening, man. <laughs> like, and he was kind of hysterical, kind of random a little bit in a sense, like very sexually open compared to Kafka, who's very repressed. And then there's Nakata who has no drive whatsoever. You had a lot of the spectrum in the story uh, for what is ultimately a very, I feel like, representative story like kind of like Oshino was another thing that was kind of interesting so you know we talked earlier that you know he had an interview with Mieko Kawakami about you know she's a feminist we, we've covered her on this channel and we've got I think I want to do heaven at some point but she's interviewing him and talking to him about his views of sexuality and opening up and stuff like that and I can't help but wonder if Murakami is constantly like criticized for how he uses sex in stories, right? And I couldn't help but feel the the two inspector women that came to like the, the library were like his past critics. Like this is the things that they say to him. And you know, I'm like, oh, he's he's just kind of like bringing that right into the novel. Like I, I you know, kind of like the Colonel Sanders, like things just coming into the novel. I saw that, and then all of a sudden he just flips my expectations with Ashino. Right. Oshino comes out saying that he's transgender, that he's gay. Uh, it was very interesting the way that that just dropped and that just changed all my understanding of the previous moments of with Oshino in the story where I had to reevaluate my expectations, which is what I thought Murakami was kind of inviting us to do on how he uses characters and how he uses things in stories. I, I do want to talk about that in just a second, but I would criticize him for just using the random food that he must be eating when he is writing so he you sit you imagine them right he's on his typewriter or his word processor because he was probably writing this what back in 1998 or something and he looks over and there's a rice bowl so it becomes the rice bowl incident and then one day he's having kentucky fried chicken and so it's colonel sanders on the side of the box mm. and like mm. if he'd had mcdonald's it would have been ron would have been one of the guys names, <laughs> right well, I, it would have been kafka and, and ron <laughs> and, 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 he, and maybe who knows like we talked about earlier he got his inspiration to writing with the the, oh gosh, I don't know the name, the Chunichi or Chunichi Jag Dragons. I can't remember the, the name. Maybe he just likes that team. Maybe he just likes music and, and maybe he just likes Kafka. Maybe he just likes cats. Like he doesn't need a reason. He doesn't have to have a metaphor, even though everything's a metaphor. <laughs> he yeah. can just throw things in there because he likes it. Like it reminds me a little bit of Stephen King's writings a bit. Yeah. So back to your original point here. So I really think the duality of the story comes out through Oshino, where you have duality and you have the split between our soul or who we think we are and our actual bodies. And that's mm -hmm. what really encapsulated the story is he defines a story. And I, I know that he's not the main character, but I think that for me, 
he embodied the major theme of this duality throughout the whole story of even an odd being two different characters following their journeys, but somebody that is trapped in a body that they don't feel is what their essence or their soul really is. And I loved that. And that yeah. really took this book to a next level for me. And I think that many people in our world nowadays can relate to that. Well, and I think Oshino is specifically, the, he's like the one non-fatalist in this book, right? He had that quote, there are a lot of things that aren't your fault or mine either. Not the fault of prophecies or curses or DNA or absurdity. Not the fault of structuralism or the third industrial revolution. We all die and disappear. But that's because the mechanism of the world itself is built on destruction and loss. Our lives are just shadows of that guiding principle. So he's the guy that's willing to buck fatalism. Like He doesn't believe it at all. As opposed to Kafka, who's probably on the other side of fatalism, who's so obsessed with it that he thinks it's in his DNA to fulfill it. And I couldn't help but kind of view a little bit of that, that Greek mentality of if you know where the string's going, like with Oedipus, do you actually go there because, you know, are you enacting a chronology by fulfilling your destiny, if you will? And I love that Murakami, in my opinion, is trying to buck the the norm with this, where you see fate laying down what's going to happen to you, and you're kind of giving fate the big middle finger and saying, no, I'm not going to be what you think I should be. I'm going to be my own person. And I think that's what Kafka struggles with this entire story, is who am I? Am I going to be the the detriment to my family and my father? Am I going to be something that I'm not proud of? And in the end, I think that he realizes that can he be both? It's open-ended question, obviously. Again, I think the interpretation of this book can be anything you want it to be, depending on who you kind of identify with more. Yeah. And, and there's something to be said, too, about how this all relates to the sexuality, too where he's drawn to his sister and his mother, theoretically, spiritual mother, I guess, in a sense. Um, and then you compare that with Nakata, who's somewhat related to them. Like when one sleeps, the other's awake. When one's dreaming, the other one's enacting. Like it's interesting the way that these two intertwine with each other. But when you look at Nakata, he has no sexual desire at all. And I was talking with Jack, he had a really brilliant point where he talks about like Oedipus, like he blinded himself, right? And Nakata's like, like illiteracy, how he can't read, that's almost kind of like a representation of that. And maybe his lack of intelligence is, is because of all of this illiteracy and sense of blinding himself because he doesn't even have the drive to pursue his own fate. And that's what we see with him. He never chases his own fate. We have to have this truck driver, Hushino, drive him towards fate, led by Colonel Sanders, the, the, the southern <laughs> pimp. <laughs> but, but all because he is willing to become a pawn of others because he doesn't want to take responsibility for his own fate. And that plays in with the fact that he's one of the only characters that has no desire, the way that everyone else is willing to take desire into their own hands. So you have his, his mother and his sister, right? Uh, Miss Saiki and Sakura. Yeah, exactly. And I think that those are encapsulating the other half of the, the sexuality and the tension throughout the story. And one thing that is we look at those individuals and we look at the idea of, of trans and gay and everything, but there's also male and female and what's happening between them as the story progresses and that is, is, is it okay? Is it not okay? And Kafka's trying to figure this out as well. And I think that, I think for me, the story was trying to help you go through your own journey and saying, 
in the end, does it really matter as long as you're happy? Because is Kafka happy at the end of the story? Well, to your point, Miss Saiki, she's almost giving up on it as well, right? Because of this loss that she had at a very young age, she just becomes this emotionally numb individual. Like she died in the past in a sense, which brings up another point I had. I wanted to ask you about this. Did you have any thoughts about future past and present when it came to the story? Yes. The whole time I kept thinking with the Rice Bowl Hill, is this incident in the past, the present, or the future? Mm. Is Kafka in the past, present, or future related to this incident in time? And that kept confusing me because I think, are these stories happening at the same time? Like, are they parallels with one another? Or... It, are they not? And that was what was so fascinating to me. And I, I honestly, I couldn't figure it out until the end that I realized that they are kind of a dream sequence, inception, dream within a dream almost. Yeah, I had the same feeling where I actually started to say something when I was talking with Jack. But then I was like, oh, wait, wait, wait. No, 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 no. That was back in World War II. The, the timelines don't max up at all. But then it's written in a way, like to your point, that these feel so connected that I kept getting confused thinking that they were in the same time. And I started doing like, I started documenting, writing down a couple of times they mentioned time <laughs> in the story. And I just love some of these quotes where they'll say, yesterday, today, tomorrow, they'd all blur into one. Like an anchorless ship, time floats aimlessly across the broad sea. And I was like, huh, what do you mean they all blur together? Because that's exactly how I feel sometimes. And this goes to the subjectivity thing, right? Like, what did we take from the story? And I'm sure there's others that that kind of focus on time in the story as well. And one of the things is I kept noticing how, to your point, Miss Saiki, kept getting stuck in the past. When her lover died at the young age, she died too emotionally. Like, And she was just a husk of a woman that continued to move forward because she was stuck in the past. But then I noticed too, okay, okay, what about Nakata? Like, right, he's constantly just doing. He's constantly just being. He's not worried about where he's going. He's giving up on fate, the future, right? He's not worried about what he did before in the past. He's not so bright, right? (laughs) How I thought reading the story. (laughs) Yeah, poor guy. you'll, You'll have a quote. Nakata shook his head. That's a tough one. Nakata still doesn't understand. The only thing I understand is the present. I'm the exact opposite, Miss Saiki said. A deep silence settled over the room. And I'm like, huh. Well, here's Nakata admitting that he only lives in the present, and here's Miss Saiki admitting that she only lives in the past. And then, hmm, when you look at Kafka, he's obsessed with the future, right? That's all he thinks about is the prophecy. So I couldn't help but kind of take these characters and align them of what does it mean to view yourself as in the past or in the present or in the future. And this kind of lined up with the characters, which I thought was interesting the way that Murakami kind of played with that. So I had a question for you with Miss Saiki that at the end there, when she does like give up her memories, she finally gives up the past and she's moving forward and progressing. And maybe that's Murakami wants us to kind of do as well. I, I don't know. But it was interesting. And maybe in Eastern culture, it's different than in Western culture. The idea of burning the memories, right? Mm. She She asks... Nakata to burn the memories and that's a purification in kind of western literature is that the same in eastern because I found that very very fascinating uh I'm not 100% sure I I would love to know the answer to that one 
where I kept going to, so what I do know of Eastern culture is sometimes like, so Miss Psyche had the boyfriend that, that passed away. And there is these old like thoughts and ideas of this red string that's supposed to connect you and your lover in, in Japanese, like Shinto thinking kind of in a way. And you'll see it play out in some animes. Like there's one called uh, Your Name that's real famous. But it's this idea of this red ribbon kind of connecting people. And I noticed that he also kind of, he being Murakami as an author, played with that and even some of the actually Western thinking too. And from a Greek perspective, where they talked about uh, the symposium from from Plato with the idea that humans used to be four-legged, four-armed, and two-headed. And they were so powerful. Like they'd move like a cartwheel spinning incredibly fast. And the gods <laughs> became worried that we were becoming too powerful. So they split us in half. One part male, oh. one part female. And what the idea is that that we wanted to reconnect with our lovers, that we were constantly drawn and loneliness was this oh, that thing that inflicted this. us. And again, there's that loneliness theme in this story. So that's why we're always looking for our lover, always wanting to connect. And, and, and sexuality is a big thing that brings us together in, in real life. And that's what this story, I think, kind of plays with, is that idea of what does it mean to want to connect with your lover? And Miss Saiki lost hers, right? She lost her red, her, her, her string was cut. And from like a, a, the symposium perspective, her lover died. So what does it mean when you don't have love? And that's when you're struck, struck with loneliness from a Greek mythology, too. So that kind of plays together pretty well, I thought. It, well, plays together with my love of the duality in the story, right? That Kafka and Nakata could be the same person. One is super sexualized. One is zero sexualized. And that they've been split in half. Huh. I, 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 that kind of fits well, too, with it. I don't know. It's, oh, it's, it's, there's so much here. I don't see how you could say that this is the way it is definitively. <laughs> At least I, I, I would argue with anybody that said you have to think it's this way, crypto. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, in dreams begin responsibility, right? There, that was a quote that came up several times. And again, another allusion to poems and poetry and stuff like that. So we have all of these ideas of maybe Kafka did wish the death of his father. And maybe in dreams and these thoughts of wanting it to be enacted and Nakata fulfilling that, like his dream persona, perhaps, if we do view the dreamscape part of this interpretation to be real, is how when you wish for something to be true and that becomes part of your responsibility, you become a part of the play, you become a part of the act. And I kind of saw a little bit of that, I felt like, with maybe what was happening with Johnny Walker, right? His father was an alcoholic, <laughs> right? Like in real, in, yeah. in the story, Kafka's father was an alcoholic. He was a sculptor. So again, molding the future, molding Kafka, again, part of that, that Greek molding the future concept too. But he was an alcoholic. He was abusive. And I think that's what we kind of saw Johnny Walker be, this abusive guy named after alcohol. And so finally, and maybe in the dreamscape where he's free to do what he wants, we see how we murder him, you know, mur murdering the father for the sake of saving Ace Ventura's cats. <laughs> <laughs> so this is where I start to go into my philosophical jump into the matrix mode, right? Which one of them is the dream sequence? Oh, whatever, whatever, whatever you, you hit think me with that. <laughs> I'm okay. So here, here's where I'm going to, I'm going to hurt your brain. Whatever you think it is, you watching at home, and you, Una, whatever one you think is the dream sequence, mm -hmm. what if it's the opposite of what you think? How does that I change the story for you? I, I, 
right? I won. I 100% of the time thought it was Nakata was the dream and Kafka was the person, the responsible. And now what that you not? bring that up, I'm like, well, could I flip that? And I think I could, right? Like I could mm. think that it's, well, maybe Nakata would have to be a little bit crazy chasing down Johnny Walker. <laughs> but what if he is <laughs> like, crazy? What if he has some type of mental illness or something? But, but that's the one that's also connected to the police in real life. And when he thinks that it's supposed to rain and it does, he maybe is exerting a little bit more control than Kafka ever exerts control on his future. Right. And that's when you're starting both dream sequences. What if they're both dream sequences? Like they're a dream right. within a dream. Oh, all right. All right. Oh. Well, let's, let's wrap this up. Let's wrap this up. We got to talk <laughs> just real quick about music. Right. Cause okay. I really like this one quote when they're talking about Beethoven and the idea about responsibility. Again, we have by Beethoven's time, people thought it was important to express the ego earlier when there was an absolute monarchy, this would have been considered improper, socially deviant behavior and suppressed quite severely. Once the bourgeois came into power in the 19th century, however, that suppression came to an end and the individual ego was liberated to express itself. I really like that quote, particularly when we think about this maybe being a young man's journey of self-expression, of liberation, sexual liberation, how he's been repressed. And maybe at the end, when we hit this forest, maybe this is him finally coming out he's he the the forest could kind of be the cave from like a hero's journey perspective they have to leave their current world they have to leave their safety behind to become the person they need to to succeed and to move forward and i like this idea of of suppression and how society can make us feel pressure to be suppressed and conform to a structure in the same way that music was and then along comes the next generation of music that bounces back and pushes back against that and says, no, I have to express myself. I can't just conform to a structure. And I felt that f that played really well, not only with Kafka's journey, but also the story as a whole, right? We talk about the core, the two chords to your point about duality in the story, right? What does that mean that there was two chords that kind of like drove the story in the same way that there's two main characters that drive this, this book, Kafka on the Shore? I'm not sure exactly how my take on music because, you know, I'm very ignorant in that. But I feel like with your quote and a lot of the story that your self-discovery and journey is isolation. When Kafka goes to the end of the story and he's in the cabin by himself and he's visited by his mother or a spirit or the dream world or Miss Saiki, whatever you think it is. I feel like that this is a journey that a lot of times we have to go on ourselves. And that isolation, that idea that it can't come from the outside, I think is kind of summed up beautifully of this personal relationship that a lot of us have with music and that you see at the end of this story. Indeed. Very powerful story. Our, our third Murakami will leave a playlist down below. I definitely will be scheduling more. And I've been told that, you know, by Jack, he's got other ones that he likes even better than this story. Well, I'm like, well, I want to check those out, right? Yeah. So if you're down for more Murakami discussions, we'll leave a playlist down below. Let's move into our subjective wrap-up and ratings. There's a lot to this story, man. A lot to digest. A lot coming at you really fast. Did it work for you? Just subjectively, not about the quality or what, you know, obviously I think we've done justice to how how layered this story is. How did this one hit you? Powerful. Uh, it, it hit me in the feels. Uh, it hit me in my chi, my soul, whatever. Uh, mm -hmm, I questioned mm -hmm. myself. 
Uh, I think about my life and my journey, the duality. Uh, I think about who I could be and who I am. I it, it made me think. And to have so much deep information on kind of a plot that's been used since Greeks and their mm. philosophy, mm. Th this story is nothing really new, but the way that it's told, the pacing, and the characters who are the heart of this story, which I love characters and I love character development, and you didn't need all of this world building and all of this other stuff. I didn't need any of the magic explained, hard magic, high magic, low magic, the force. I didn't need any of that. It was just magical. Mm. Uh, and I, I don't want to give this a number because I don't think mm. that a book like this needs a number. I don't think a book like mm. this needs to be explained. I think a book like this needs to be experienced. Mm, okay, well, now you're going to make me feel guilty, so no, I don't want to rate it either. But let <laughs> no, me just, you can do it number. No, I feel really guilty. Now now I want to do the same thing where I'll say <laughs> I had such a blast reading the story. There were so many fun parts. The Colonel Sanders off-the-wall moments. Num, 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 absolutely loved it. Uh, I would agree with Jack. There's parts that brought me out of the story, too, uh, that, that weren't detrimental to me, but I think for some it will. So definitely look up trigger warnings if you haven't read this book. Uh, but it is definitely for me. I, I just the writing was great. I loved his writing style. Definitely want to read more of his books. We'll say recommended, highly recommended is kind of what I say. But do your research on the warnings, if you will. What number would you give it, though? Oh, come on. Don't you. You are my dreamscape. You cannot okay. live through me for responsibility of rating this book. <laughs> OK, would you give it red Johnny Walker or Johnny Walker black? Oh, which, what's, what's the most expensive one? What's the most expensive one? Uh, I think there's one. Uh, I think those Johnny are the Walker. two cheapest. Oh, are they? Green? Well, I'm going to go with, I'm I don't, go with gold. the expensive one. Johnny Walker Gold. I don't know what the most expensive one is. <laughs> Guys, hit that subscribe button. Join us uh, as we talk about books and have a blast doing this. We post videos every Monday and Thursday. We'll see you on the journey. Una out. Peace. <laughs>